Roger Clemens was a major league pitcher. He was known for his overpowering fastball. But because he spent his career in the American League where they have the designated hitter, he never had to bat you know, as a pitcher. Until one year he was elected to the All-Star Game and the All-Star Game was played in a National League ballpark. And back in the day, the National League didn't have the designated hitter rule, and so they played the game by National League rules. So Roger Clemens came to the plate with some nervousness as he had never had a Major League at-bat. And he took his position in the batter's box and got ready. And the pitcher on the mound threw a fastball right down the middle of the plate. And Clemens sort of fell back as he heard the smack in the glove. And he turned to the catcher and he said, does my fastball look like that? And the catcher goes, oh no, yours is way worse. <laughs> and Roger Clemens said for the rest of his career, he was never afraid to throw his fastball in any situation because he had never realized up until that moment just how powerful and intimidating it was. We're in a series of lessons from the letters of Paul to the Thessalonians, the church in Thessalonica. And in the third chapter, we're going to approach Paul reminding the Thessalonians of who they are, their identity in Christ. And like that pitcher who had never seen a fastball from the batter's perspective, we need to see who we are in Christ. And we need to be reminded of what it is that we have at our disposal because that reminder is what makes us strong enough, courageous enough, bold enough to live in the generation that we face. The first two chapters, Paul talked about the church and his relationship, but he's, he's going to continue that theme, but really... Uh, in the face of what this church in Thessalonica was facing, he wants them to remember who they are. And so he's going to remind them, first of all, about persecution. First five verses, 1 Thessalonians chapter 3. Paul says, Therefore, when we could no longer endure it, we thought it best to be left behind alone at Athens, and we sent Timothy, our brother, and God's fellow worker in the gospel of Christ, to strengthen and encourage you for the benefit of your faith, so that no one would be disturbed by these afflictions. For you yourselves know that we have been destined for this, for even when we were with you, we kept telling you in advance that we were going to suffer affliction, and so it happened, as you know. For this reason, when I could no longer endure it, I also sent to find out about your faith for fear that the tempter might have tempted you and our labor would be for nothing. It's interesting, we know, from, we know the background of this story from the 17th chapter of Acts. You recall that Paul uh, made his way from Philippi, the, where he saw the first converts on European soil, he went from Philippi to Thessalonica and ministered there for a while, long enough to 
lead people to Christ long enough to establish a church, but the Jews who were in Thessalonica became stirred up against Paul and caused an incredible civic disturbance to the point that Paul was forced to leave the city. He began to travel, he went to Berea and on to some other places, but by the time he gets to Athens, and this is also in that middle section of Acts, by the time he gets to Athens, he is beside himself, not with fear, but with concern. Because here is a church that he left in Thessalonica, a church that he absolutely fell in love with, but they were facing real distress. In fact, History tells us that the church in Thessalonica, because of the opposition against them, uh, the members of that church were, uh, were ostracized from polite society. Many of them lost their jobs. They lost their, their source of income. It was difficult for them to buy food because of the opposition. They were treated as, as people who weren't fit for, for normal society. And Paul, having to leave against his will, uh, was concerned about the church and about the, the burden that they were carrying. And so he, he, he tells them, as he writes this letter, he said, we could no longer endure it. And so when I came to Athens, I chose, Paul knew he couldn't go back to Thessalonica, at least not yet. He'd been run out of town, and, 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 and it would have caused more trouble for the church if he had gone back. But he said, I, prefer, I preferred to stay by myself alone in Athens so that I could send Timothy back to you to get a report about your faith. Now, this wasn't a slight against the church. Paul knew that he couldn't go back. But Timothy was not uh, a sort of um, uh, minion or underling. Timothy uh, was, was an apostolic emissary. I mean, he was operating with, with the full authority and, and, and wisdom of Paul behind him. And so Paul says, I'd rather stay by myself. As much as he didn't like to be by himself, he, he said, I'd rather stay in Athens by myself because I've got to send Timothy because I've got to find out about the church there. And he said, I, I sent Timothy to encourage you so that you could endure what was, what was coming your way. But then here's what we need to hear. As he's talking about this church in the middle of their, um, their, their struggles, my translation uses the word afflictions, but affliction or persecution, uh, the church was facing real opposition in the culture in which they had been placed. And he said, I'm sending my fellow worker in the gospel to strengthen and encourage you for the benefit of your faith so that no one would be disturbed by these afflictions. It's fascinating because Paul, Paul says in, in verse 4, even when we were with you, we kept telling you in advance that we were going to suffer affliction. And so it happened. He says, we were destined for this in verse 3. What Paul is doing is he's reminding the church of exactly what it means to be the church in any generation when the world is not, uh, does not hold to the things that we hold to. But when he says we were destined for this, he's not saying that God predetermined that we would go through hard times. 
it's, it, it doesn't mean predetermination. It means inevitability. He said, we knew that eventually to be at cross purposes with the world was an in inevitability for us. I think sometimes about that, that fairy tale, that, that story that, that you've all heard. Um, you heard it for the first time when you were a child about the emperor's new clothes. You see, the story goes that there was a con man who came to an emperor with uh, a, a way to defraud the crown. He, he, he proposed a new suit of clothes for the king, but he said the, the material for these, these clothes are, uh, are extraordinary. The material is so delicate, so beautiful. It is so valuable that only people of the highest moral character, only people of, uh, of the purest heart can even see the material. And so as he held out his hands, the, the king, not wanting to be, uh, to, not wanting to be recognized as being less than, than, than perfectly pure in heart and, and, and morally superior, he said, oh, oh my, that's beautiful material. I think I need a suit of clothes. And so the con man goes through all the motions of creating this suit of clothes and all of the courtiers and all of the, uh, the citizens of the kingdom, because nobody wanted to admit that they couldn't see the clothes, they all oohed and awed about how beautiful the king's clothes were. Until he, marching with his invisible clothes down the parade ground, a little boy in the crowd yells above the tumult, hey, he don't got no clothes on. <laughs> now, this was the moment when everybody could have said, oh, good, it's not just me. But what did they say? Shut that kid up. The Thessalonians 2,000 years ago and the people of Evergreen in 2023, we live in a generation just like they did, a generation so corporately deceived by the enemy that we don't want to admit that the nonsense that we believe in this culture is nonsense because to admit it is to suggest that I'm just not up to the level of enlightenment that everybody else is. And so our culture rolls along pretending that we all believe that nonsense is sense, that, that, that silliness is seriousness. And what we've done is we've elevated a kind of broken understanding of reality and we've made it into reality but because we've said if you don't believe this it's because you're not really up to where the rest of us are everybody in the culture stands dutifully along the way and says oh look at the emperor's beautiful clothes we are called as they were in Thessalonica 2,000 years ago we are called to be a voice that says, hey, that idea, that ain't got no clothes. 
But we understand that as we stand for what's true, it will put us in a position where the culture says, shut that boy up. Paul said to the Thessalonians, I told you in advance. Even when Paul is planting a church early on in the life of these brand new believers, he said, I need you to understand what's inevitable. And what's inevitable is that you are going to be living out of step with the culture around you, and they are not going to accept you. They're not going to make it easy. They're going to try and shut you up. But you've got to make a decision whether it's more important to live for what's true or to play the pretend game and be accepted by the culture. This is where persecution comes from. Now, uh, here's the thing that we have to remember. This nonsense of our generation, I said it's a corporate deception. And the reason why I want you to understand that is because the people out there who are trying to sell us all of this stuff, they're not the enemy. There is a real enemy, but he's hidden. He's behind them. These people, unfortunately, they're prisoners of war. I mean, we're in a war, but not against them. They've been taken captive by the principalities and the powers, and that's who we're fighting. So we can't lose sight of who the real enemy is. But we also have to remember who we are so that we understand what it is we stand for and we can fight against the temptation of, of, of fitting in. You see, that's where, that's where he finishes these first five verses. He says, we kept telling you in advance about this affliction and, and you, you remember that. Verse 5, for this reason, when I could no longer endure it, I also sent to find out about your faith for fear that the tempter might have tempted you and our labor would be for nothing. Paul is acknowledging that it's not the people in Thessalonica who are causing the church problem that are the real enemies. The real enemy is the tempter behind them. Now, the tempter works in two ways. The tempter works for those who are not in Christ by telling them, hey, you want to be enlightened? You want to be a part of the crowd? You want to be the mover and the shaker? Then just believe this. It's trendy to believe all the things that are, are being promoted right now. And frankly, the illusion is uh, this is how you get ahead in the world. This is how you get to be president of the United States. This is how you get to be CEO of a major company. This is how you, you advance in, in your wealth accumulation. You play the game. You fit in. You move with the movers and the shakers. Paul said the tempter is out there among the people saying this is how you get ahead. That's their temptation. But inside the church, he has a different strategy. The temptation is to say, why don't you just go along to get along? I mean, what's the point of being different, of always swimming upstream? I mean, really, just, just keep it to yourself. Just fit in. It, it'll make things easier. 
See, that was the temptation. And Paul said, I had to send Timothy because I was concerned that you would fall victim to this temptation to just go along to get along. Just acknowledge that the emperor's clothes are beautiful because that's the way you fit in. Just have the right sermon topics. Put the right decorations outside your church. Just, just fit in. It's a temptation. Paul said, when you don't fit in, the affliction is then inevitable. Okay. Now, it's important that we remember that the affliction is inevitable so that when we face opposition, we don't go to God and ask, why is this happening to me? The question that needs to be in our minds is not why. The question is, what did I expect? I've known this from the beginning. This was a part of the package that I accepted when I came to Christ. Listen, in case you've forgotten, they put him on a cross. And yet we've got churches filled with people who think that the world is going to treat us so much nicer than they did Jesus. I hate to tell you, but Jesus was perfect. If anybody was going to get good treatment, it should have been him. They put him on a cross. And just to be identified by his name means they're coming for us. Again, it's not the people. It's the enemy. He hates Jesus. And he hates the, the people of Jesus. It's inevitable. Okay, so what do we do? Well, Paul says, I want to remind you of the power that comes from being together as the people of God. Um, he, he said, I sent Timothy because I wanted to make sure that our labor wouldn't be for nothing, that you hadn't given in to the temptation to just fit in. Verse 6, but now that Timothy has come to us, oh, and by the way, I want to read these verses, the next five verses, but I want you to, I, this is the closest we have in the New Testament to Paul just giving an emotional outburst. I want to try and read this with, with the inflection that I think was, was in Paul as he penned these words. He says, but now that Timothy has come to us from you and has brought us good news of your faith and love, and that you always think kindly of us, longing to see us just as we also long to see you. For this reason, brothers and sisters, in all our distress and affliction, we were comforted about you through your faith. For now we really live if you stand firm in the Lord. For what thanks can we give to God for you in return for all the joy with which we rejoice because of you before our God, as we keep praying most earnestly night and day that we may see your faces and may complete what is lacking in your faith. Paul says, I was so concerned that I sent Timothy, but now Timothy has returned. And I got to tell you, even in the middle of our affliction, we've been comforted. What an interesting statement. Paul doesn't say, I've been comforted because my circumstances got better. He said, my circumstances are unchanged, but I'm comforted because I see what God's doing in your life. Listen, what he's telling us here is that as we face the inevitability of opposition, part of the, 
part of the source of power that gives us the ability to go through what we go through is the fact that we share community as the people of Jesus Christ. The power is the fact that we are the church, the body of Christ, the bride of Christ. And it's what we draw from each other when we come to this place. Paul said, my circumstances aren't any different, but but I tell you what, I feel a whole world better because I see what God's doing in you. What God is doing in the lives of each one of us is an encouragement to all of us. That's why it's appropriate for us to raise our hands and say, listen, I, I'm, 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 I'm taking a beating right now. And I, I could really use the church to come alongside me. Why? Because that process is the church providing a source for you to draw power from. The ability to face what you're facing, to go through what you're going through. That's why we do life together. We can't afford to just be individuals who happen to be in the same location at the same time during the week. We can't just be a collection of people that make up a crowd and just come and do something and then scatter. We have to be bonded together because that's where we draw strength. Paul said, I, I, I got the word from Timothy and And I can't tell you, he told me about your faith and your love and and about how consistent you're serving as the church and how you want to see us as desperately as we want to see you. For that reason, in all our distress and affliction, we were comforted about you through your faith. For now we really live if you stand firm. Listen. One of the enemy's temptations, one of his lies that he tells us is that um, you're really not a significant player in this generation. Um, the, the, my conversation with people, it usually starts with, with something like this. They'll say, well, you know, I'm, I'm not an important person. I, I don't have any real influence. I, I'm not in the halls of power. I don't, I'm not elected to any position of political power and influence. I, uh, I'm not a pastor. I don't stand on a stage. I don't have an audience. I, nobody listens to me. Okay, here's the thing about that. That is the enemy trying to tell you how insignificant you are when the fact of the matter is Wherever you are, you have a sphere of influence and God has supernaturally designed you to be adequate to the moment and the place where he's put you. You might say, well, nobody listens to me at work. You'd be surprised. Well, there's not any other believers at work. Well, hello, doesn't that make your place there that much more crucial? Well, they get offended because I try and read my Bible when I, when I take my lunch break. Of course they get offended because they want to shut the boy up. Because you're acknowledging that the nonsense of our generation is just that. The emperor has no clothes. But we have an alternative. We know a real king who's clothed in glory, who has what we need. I, I, I don't really have a platform. Yes, you do. Do you have a family? Do you have relatives? Do they need you to be following Jesus for them? Well, they're not believers. Well, 
then they really need you to be following Jesus, don't they? Well, it's hard. It's uncomfortable. It's, it's awkward. Yeah, it's also inevitable. But we accepted that when we signed on. When we said Jesus is going to be the definition of who we want to become in this world. Of the life that we want to live in eternity. We gave ourselves to Jesus. He bought us with a price. And that means that he puts us wherever he needs to use us. And we are to be the people of God in that place. This place is where we come to be strengthened, to pray for each other, to build each other up, to walk together through life, to stand shoulder to shoulder so that we're strong enough to go back out into our sphere of influence and represent Jesus. He said, now that I know what's happening in your faith, man, we can really live. You don't care what's going on in other people's spiritual walks unless you're in relationship with those people. And then all of a sudden, you see God at work in their life. And you know what that does? It says, it gives me confidence that God's at work in my life. Some of you are in a storm right now. Some of you are going through difficulties. Some of you are facing something that's painful, that's hurtful, and you're really, you're really struggling. And I get that. And I know so many of these situations. And they weigh heavy on me. But what you need to understand is that God is at work here, and you've not been left on your own. You're chosen, not forsaken. And when we see God at work among us, we may, know that we, may, we may know that we need a work of God right now, and we're asking for that, but we have confidence that it's coming because we see him working around us in the lives of other people. Now that we see your faith, we can really live. He says, what thanks can we give to God? The Greek that's translated there, Greek actually implies some things in its grammar. And the Greek here, Paul is actually suggesting that it's impossible to thank God enough for what he's doing among his people. For what thanks can we give to God for you in return for all the joy with which we rejoice because of you before our God? We, we can't thank him enough for the privilege of being a part of a people called Evergreen. We can't thank him enough for the way that we connect to one another and draw strength from one another. We can't thank him enough for the gift of being a child of God. Man, we can sing praises. I, if I didn't have such a burden that this passage is divinely selected for us today, we might have just done worship for another hour. I mean, I would have been fine with that. Except that I, I, I in fact, I, I thought maybe we should just keep singing. But we needed to hear this word. And the word is that your difficulties were inevitable. So don't think that you're just, that your life is just worse than everybody else. It's inevitable that we would have affliction and opposition in this world. But there is a power that comes from the people of God being together. And we draw from that power. 
and it makes us able to face what we do out there in the world. Paul said, we keep praying most earnestly night and day that we may see your faces and may complete what is lacking in your faith. That is, he says, I have two prayer requests. Number one, I want to see you again. I'm going to ask God to work that out. And number two, I want to be a part of even greater growth in your church. See, he's talking about completing your faith. He's talking about what we do together as the people of God, our church. There is a, a disciple-making process where we're learning the disciplines of the faith, where we are learning to, to read Scripture, to pray, to, to memorize uh, our Bible verses, to, to do ministry, to give. Those are spiritual disciplines, habits that make us stronger in our walk. But those cannot be divorced from what happens when we do this together in a corporate sense. I occasionally meet someone who, who they find out that I'm, I'm a pastor and they'll say something like, well, well I'm, a, I'm a Jesus follower, but, but I don't go to church. And I used to smile and nod and be polite, but now I'm, I'm, I'm past that. I'm to this age where I just... So I'm a Jesus follower, but I don't go to church. And I'm like, no, no, you're not. Because everybody that I know that follows Jesus, he leads them to church. Well, I just don't like the church. I think the church is full of hypocrites. Absolutely it is. Absolutely it is. But we freely admit we're hypocrites. We are becoming something that we are not yet. We want to be something that we haven't gotten to yet. Sure, we're hypocrites. I own that. I admit that. I don't, go, I don't go to the church because the church is full of hypocrites. Listen, I, I love Jesus. I, don't, I just don't love the church. Well, let's talk about that. The Bible tells us that the church is the body of Christ. Jesus, I like you, but I don't like your body. It tells us that the church is the bride of Christ. Jesus, I like you, but I don't like your wife. Jesus, I love you, but I, uh, but I don't like your church. The church is the flock of the great shepherd. You can't tell the great shepherd, I'll hang out with you, but I don't like the smell of sheep that's on you. The reality is if you want to hang out with the great shepherd, if you want to hang out with the great bridegroom, if you want to hang out with the Lord of the church, you have to be in love with the people of God that make up the church. I've quit apologizing for that. Oh, you can be a Christian and get to heaven without going to church. You can be a fish out of water too, but we call that dinner. <laughs> we can't stand against the wave of nonsense in our culture if we do it on our own. There is a power that comes because we are the church of Jesus Christ. He reminded them about persecution. He reminded them about power. He reminds them about prayer. Real quickly, he's going to pray in these last three verses. And these are the prayers for the two things he just said. He wanted to see them and he wanted to be a part of their spiritual growth. He fleshes that out. Verse 11, now may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus direct our way to you. 
Understand he's praying that God will eliminate satanic hindrances because he's not just saying, God, give us the schedule opening so that we can come to Thessalonica. He's saying there's an enemy who's keeping us away from the people we love, and we're asking God to step in and make it possible for us to be back with you. But then verse 12, it says, And may the Lord cause you to increase and overflow in love for one another and for all people. He prays for them to have an increased love and spiritual growth. Listen, Paul leaves no escape hatch here. There's no no fine print that you can get around here. He said, I'm praying for you to have increasing love for one another in the church and for all the other people outside the church. Here's the bottom line. We don't get to pick and choose who we will love. Don't miss this. We got a church full of misfits. And if you're going, we sure do. Listen, you're you're one of those misfits. (laughs) But we have been assembled supernaturally to be something together. We could never be on our own. We are the church of Jesus Christ. You know, we, go, we have a process for membership here. There's a class that you go through. There's a covenant that you commit to. But you know what we don't have? We don't have an obligatory meal where you take the pastor out and he decides if he likes you or not. I'm thinking about proposing it, but... But you see, we don't, we don't assemble the church. This is not the schoolyard where, where we drafted and I take him and I'll take him and I'll pick him and I'll pick him. You know, we don't get to do that. God assembled this team. And frankly, we better show grace to one another because every single one of us could have been left off this team if it wasn't for the grace of God. He's made us the church. And Paul said, I'm going to pray that you increase in your love for each other. Man, we pray a lot about circumstances, and that's legitimate. We pray about somebody's bad back. We pray about somebody's job situation. We pray about somebody's medical needs. But I'm telling you, we need to rise to the level of Paul. He says, I'm going to pray these things. I'm going to pray that your love increases. Can you imagine what would happen in the life of a church if we were praying for each other if you got a roster of everybody in your Sunday school class or you, you, you walk down the, the, the list of people in your life group and every day you prayed that their love would increase for people in the church and for people outside the church. But there's something else. That love that he's praying about, look at the last verse. So that God may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. He wants you to not only increase in love, but he wants you to have a determination to live a holy life. That's the key to a successful finish in the Christian life. And, it, and holiness, the holiness he's praying about in verse 13, is grounded in the request for love in verse 12. Think about this. We use the word holiness, and the connotation for holiness so often is correct doctrine. 
Now listen, we, we want correct doctrine. We want to understand the Word of God, and we want to have, uh, uh, we want to have a right understanding of, of Scripture. But correct doctrine without love creates a loveless Christianity, and that is an oxymoron. Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, you can speak the, the language of angels. You can have all the gifts. You can, be, you can have all the correct theology. But if you don't love your brothers and sisters in Christ, you're just making noise. Holiness is not cold orthodoxy. Holiness is Christ-likeness that's played out through practical love. It's not moral legalism or theological complexity. It's thinking right about what's true and thinking God thoughts about each other. Folks, that's who we are. We are the children of God. We are chosen and not forsaken. As we go out this morning, here's the only invitation. Find somebody in this room. Maybe you know them. Maybe you have to introduce yourself. Find somebody in this room and say, I'm going to pray for you every day this week. And I wanted you to know that. I'm going to pray that your love increases and that your heart is blameless in holiness as we together in the church called Evergreen, as we become more and more the people of Jesus Christ. Listen, as you pray that we increase our love in the body, don't forget, Paul said we're going to pray to increase our love for those outside the body because remember, they're not the enemy. They're prisoners of war. They're deceived. we got to fight the real enemy, and we're stealing back prisoners of war and bringing them into our kingdom. I'm going to pray that your love increases, your love for each other and for all people, and that your hearts are made blameless in holiness so that you'll be ready when Jesus comes back with all of his saints. In Jesus' name, amen.